Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality. Uh, today I have a couple of interesting topics to go over. Uh, one of them is going to be the Trinity UFO crash. Uh, and uh, it seems that uh, this thing is a hoax uh, and that valet has been duped. Uh, I'm going to talk about that first. And then uh, later on I'm going to talk about a document, alleged document, that uh, was put together by uh, Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein in 1947, June 1947. And I'm going to talk about uh, whether that document uh, is potentially real or if it's a hoax. Uh, but anyway, we're going to start off with this Trinity hoax. Now, I'm just going to tell a little story here how this is how all this uh, went down for me. Now, I guess it was probably last weekend. I actually bought this book. I actually got it in the mail. It's uh, Magic Eyes Only by Ryan Wood. And uh, I was going through this book. Uh, I've, I've been actually I've been reading several books at the same time here. I have about two, uh, two other ones going, and I and I really was excited to get this book. I just ordered it. It was a reprint. Uh, it was unavailable for for a while, and now there's it's been updated and revised. And I picked it up last week, and then I was cherry picking through some of the. Uh, different cases in here through the different chapters and uh, I actually one of the chapters was about an incident that happened in the early 1950s in Denver Colorado which I actually talked about in a podcast last week unfortunately for me I skipped one chapter here which I probably should have read uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you what chapter that is. It's uh, actually chapter 14 about San Antonio, New Mexico. Had I read this, uh, then maybe I wouldn't have made a comment on Twitter that it actually I, I was wrong about. Uh, but anyway, uh, Ryan Wood actually talks about uh, this alleged uh, Trinity UFO crash from 1940 uh, from 1945 that we've all heard about that was uh, Jacques Vallée, along with uh, Paola Harris, wrote about in his uh, book about Trinity. He actually wrote a book about Trinity, and then it, a, a revised version came out in 2022. He actually, the first version came out in 2021, then he came out with the revised version in 2022. And it's uh, his book was called... Uh, uh, Trinity, the best kept secret. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I believe that Valet was duped. Uh, Jacques Valet, I mean, I think he's a great researcher. Of course, he's been into this since the 1950s. He's been interested in this. Uh, he's done a lot of great work. Uh, unfortunately, I think he's been duped by one of the uh, witnesses uh, who has basically tri tricked him. Uh, that's what I think. I think a lot has to do with uh, some somebody who uh, came off as... Uh, somebody who was believable to him and and he basically the whole case basically re relies on the testimony of this one person uh, along with his uh, friend who had passed away in 2013 and uh, it turned out to be all fake of course what we're talking about here is uh, there was two young boys teenagers back in uh, 1945 Remy Baca and uh, Jose Padilla they they uh were living in San Antonio, New Mexico at the time. And, uh, and they say, they claimed that in August of 1945 that they came across a, uh, what they believed was an alien spacecraft that had crashed and that there were aliens inside this thing. Uh, and then they had, uh, they went back to it later on with their, with their father and, and, uh, and the state police officer and the police officer looked inside and, uh, and this is what basically the whole story is. And then the, then the army showed up and took the object away. And But they they were able to get a piece of metal from it. And uh, this is what Jacques Vallée was writing about in his book. And unfortunately, uh, this, this case is most certainly a hoax. And you could thank uh, researcher Douglas Dean Johnson for that. But anyway, uh, in uh, Ryan Wood's book, uh, 
Magic Eyes Only, it talks about, he talked about this. He says, however, in 2023, Douglas Johnson did considerably, considerably more thorough investigations. He talked with Baca, cross-referenced information, recorded interviews from this author and others, and clearly advanced the Trinity case investigation. In 2005, when the first edition of Magic Eyes Only was published, there was an authenticity rating of medium-high, and today, based on Johnson's investigations, the new rating is low-medium because of the evidence that Johnson uncovered. I'd have to actually go a little bit further than that and say the evidence is low, low-bottom. Because I, 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 at best, it's, I would say this story is 98.7% hoax. That's my opinion. That if you're going to put a, a number on it, that's what this is. After looking through uh, Douglas Dean Johnson's research on this, there's this guy, these people, this was a hoax. That's what this is, unfortunately. Unfortunately for Valet. But you know what? This kind of thing happens and you got to move on from it. You got to get over it. Uh, we're going to talk about why it's a hoax later on here. But anyway... Uh, continues here it says at this stage it is very likely this is a hoax given all the inconsistencies and Baca's grab for two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the story and the piece of alleged wreckage yeah uh, Baca was trying to make money off this off this piece of of wreckage that they claimed came from this crashed spaceship uh, that that piece of wreckage was actually uh there was analysis done by UFO researcher Timothy Good and the analysis showed that it was just simply aluminum we'll get into that later on uh, but anyway it, uh, uh, Ryan Wood also states here, Johnson uncovered that before Baca and Padilla went public with their story of witnessing a UFO crash and recovery as young boys, they tried to interest a well-known writer of popular books on the Roswell incident, Thomas Carey, in their eyewitness account of encounter, encountering a crashed UFO when they, were bo- when they were boys. But the account that Baca presented to Thomas Carey, who recorded it, <laughs> used a tape recorder to record it, was very different from the UFO crash story that Baca and Padilla presented to the public less than a year later. In retrospect, it appears that what Baca presented to Carrie was what might be regarded as an unsuccessful first draft of the hoax tale. And so it's, and he goes on to say that he's delighted that uh, Johnson took the time to sort out the truths, engage the skeptics, and respond and publicly document the case. Yes, uh, it is really good work, and I do compliment uh, Douglas Dean Johnson for uh, what he's done here because it is uh, exceptional work on uh, on proving that, for the most part, that this is a hoax. There's just <laughs> there's just too much. There, this has more holes in it than Swiss trees. There's more red flags in this story than you'd see in a May Day parade. I mean, it's in, it's it's absurd, actually. I mean, it's incredible the amount of inconsistencies and. and and lies i mean it goes on i'm now now uh johnson has been publishing different articles since spring of last year about this talking about this and uh the most recent article was uh, he published in january it was updated in february on february 28th and i'm looking at that right now it's it's a very long piece and i can't i'm not going to sit here and read through the entire thing i'll just look at some talk about some of the things that he's uncovered for one thing uh his his own son was was uh videotaped uh telling saying that his dad's a pathological liar and that he made all of these things up and this was uh from a body cam footage from a from a from a police officer that's one thing uh but we're gonna t- we'll talk about some of the things here it says uh, i'm just gonna read a little bit of this article it says Two storytellers deceive an icon of ufology. In their years of promoting the story of a 1945 alien craft crash and recovery, Jacques Vallée and Paola Harris constructed a towering skyscraper of speculation on a thin foundation made of chalk. 
The foundation has disintegrated, yet Valet and Harris continue to engage in tortured exertions, seeking to avoid acknowledging the reality that their skyscraper has collapsed. Uh, it says here, in June 2021, Valet and Harris self-published a co-authored book, Trinity, The Best Kept Secret, reciting a story of the crash and recovery of an alien craft. The event supposedly occurred a month after and not many miles away from the site of the first atomic bomb test, the Trinity test of July 16, 1945. An expanded second edition followed in August 2022. Uh, Valet hired a publicist to promote the book and the story. By January 2023, the Trinity crash story had been featured by media outlets as diverse as the New York Times, Tucker Carlson Tonight, on the Fox News Network and the Daily Mail in the UK, and on innumerable UFO-oriented websites and podcasts. And I just want to also point out, too, uh, and he talks about this in one of his other articles, this, the, the reason that this, this historical review that uh, Arrow has been conducting is starting in January 1945 was because of this story. This, this caused them to, to look at the historical records starting back in 1945. There's no problem with that, but that's why that happened, because this story, at the time when it came out, there was no... Uh, uh, story like this from from johnson the the show that this thing is a most certainly a hoax right this was most certainly made up i mean unless like i said before a 98.7 percent chance that this is a hoax there's a small tiny tiny chance that valet can come up with something else other witnesses or some other documentation to corroborate what uh, his lone witness is jose padilla has been telling him then maybe things will change but i don't see that happening I just don't see it happening. So I have to agree with Johnson that this thing is most certainly a hoax. And unfortunately for me, you know, the reason I, uh, I'm i bringing this up is because on Twitter, uh, I there was a comment uh, on February 29th from debunker Jason Colavito where he was disparaging the UFO community. Tom DeLong had just... Uh, he's publishing this new book that's that was inspired by this whole Trinity story, and his story is called the uh, called Trinity. Right? And anyway, Calavito wrote, "Delong writes a novel based on Jacques Vallée's account of a hoax, and soon enough, the novel will become secret proof that the hoax wasn't a hoax." Uh, so I I didn't like that at all. I mean, for one thing, I did not know of, at this time of Johnson's. Uh, uh, research at this point i had no idea i did not see it i mean i i go on twitter all the time you know I'm, somehow this went over my over over the radar for me and i did not know about this but i actually responded to to uh, Colavito saying i didn't know that the trinity story was a de- was debunked as a hoax oh i get it you debunked it out of hand by conducting zero research from your armchair what a great gig who do you have to trick to get a research by proclamation job now, uh, usually about 99% of the time, that is the case when it comes to people like uh, Calavito, uh, but unfortunately, not, not this time. So, I, you know, I reacted, and that was a mistake by my behalf, and so I, I actually uh, provided another tweet where I apologized to him because uh, uh, I was wrong. I'm, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely wrong about this. There is enough evidence that has been put together by uh, Johnson that shows that this is most likely a hoax. So I actually wrote back, uh, tweeted yesterday, I said, actually, Jason Colavito is correct about Trinity being a hoax. I apologize for saying he debunked it out of hand. And I said, I received information today from a MUFON investigator that clearly shows a multitude of falsehoods related by the main witnesses raising numerous red flags. And yes, that's what happened. I actually received a uh, uh, email from Skylar Stallings. He's a certi- uh, Skylar's a certified field investigator uh, for MUFON in uh, Kentucky. He, this is what he wrote. He says, uh, uh, 
I just listened to your latest podcast where you mentioned the Trinity case and allegations that it was a hoax. You said that you were not aware of any research or information that su- suggested the particular case was not credible. This is just a friendly message to let you know where you can read more about the hoax allegations. Check out the info on this link. And he provided the link. And then it goes on to say, for the record, I have tremendous respect for Jacques Vallée and his body of work, but I do think there is some compelling information that he may have been misled on the Trinity case. Of course, this doesn't invalidate anything that you said in the episode. I just thought you might be interested in having this info. Yeah, in the in a recent in the recent episode that I did, I actually mentioned what I said to Colorado, and uh, you know, I, I I just don't like the way the debunkers you know completely uh, always disparaging the UFO community. I I pointed out that it could be a hoax. Trinity could be a hoax, but I just haven't seen the evidence to that effect. Now I have. I have. Thank you, Skyler, for sending this to me and alerting me to this. And uh, and we're going to get back into uh, some of the things that are talked about here. Some of the reasons why this is a hoax. There's been so many different changes uh, to the story over the years. For one thing, uh, there was, you know, like I said before, there was uh, just this guy's own son, Sammy Padilla, this Jose Padilla. He's the lone witness now to this, the lone surviving witness. He's 87 years old. Yeah, his own son, Sammy Padilla, he says, my direct quote is, my dad is a pathological liar. Uh, and he says that his, 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 like there was all this information in that that Valet included in his book, Valet, Val, uh, Valet and Harris, in the in this book that they put out, and it's it's turns out that it's it's turning out to be false. Like this guy was in the war, he's in the Korean War. That there's no corroboration to this whatsoever. In fact, he wasn't even old enough to be in the war at the time. And there's just so much. If you if you go through this article, you will see all the different inconsistencies. Uh, here's, uh, I, there's a fact that you could check out this little video in this article that I'll leave the link so you can check it out where his own son is talking to this police officer, talking about how his dad's a liar about everything, uh, and a narcissist. So I'm going to go through some of the other things that, 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 the, the, how the story has been, uh, turned around and, and changed over the years. This table at the at, toward the end of this article has you know it shows you some of the differences between statements that were made earlier and not statements were that were made later. How the story has morphed over time. I mean it's it's incredible the the number of holes in the story. And I uh, you know I it's, it's unfortunate again for Valet, but this this is most certainly a this most certainly is a hoax. No no question. This says here the, the Remy Baca UFO crash story from 2002 draft versus the published Baca Padilla story. So in 2002 or early 2003, this Remy, uh, Remy Baca met with Thomas Carey, who did a, wrote a lot of these uh, Roswell books that I talk about all the time, along with, he co-authored them with uh, uh, Donald Schmidt. And Carey just, he, he audio recorded this, and then he dismissed it because he didn't believe it, apparently. But anyway, uh, here was like an element of the story. And for, from the interview in 2002, early 2003, uh, when did it happen? Remy Baca said four times it happened in the summer of 1946. Late summer, probably August. It'd be a, a year since the bomb. And then in the updated story, that's uh, f- after uh, starting in October 30th to November 6, 2003 and later, uh, this is when, when Baca was still alive, uh, the, the story was changed to mid-August 1945 in Trinity, the best kept secret, the crashes on August 16th, 1945, recovery takes roughly 10 days. So it's like this. Now, I don't have a problem with somebody making a mistake about years. I mean, you're talking a long time ago. I mean, at the time when they, these guys start talking about this story back in the early 2000s, they were in their mid-60s, right? 
and they're they, okay that that could be understandable but as you go through this a lot of the, the rest of it's not understandable uh, who found the downed UFO? Uh, the original story was uh, Remy Baca, who was about seven, and Jose Padilla, who was nine or ten. Uh, and then uh, the, the story changed. Uh, then it was Remy Baca, age six, usually reported as seven, and Jose Padilla, age eight. Uh, what was the boys' intent when they went out that day? Uh, and the, the fir- original story was to visit the Ground Zero blast site, also to look for a cow about to give birth. And then the revised story was to find a cow about to give birth and to check out check on fences. How did the boys travel? Padilla dro- in the original story, Padilla drove a pickup truck, and then in the revised story, they were on two horses. Uh, did the boys see or hear a crash? The first story was no mention of hearing or seeing anything unusual until simply coming upon large alien disc recently downed. And then the revised story was boys see a flash of light and or hear a very loud sound. They cross a ridge and find the just crashed UFO. So it just keeps the story morphed over time. Uh, the original story, uh, did the boys see aliens? Yes, shadowy figures, figures like bugs. No mention of unusual movements by or any sounds from the aliens. The revised story, very detailed, although conflicting descriptions in later accounts. Strange movements, loud squeals. The original story, who later returned to the crash site with the boys and when? Jose de Padilla's father and an unnamed state police officer the day after discovery. The revised story, Jose Padilla's father and New Mexico state police officer Eddie Apodaca two days after the crash. And then, if, then you find out about this Eddie Apodaca. He wasn't even a state police officer at the time. He wasn't a state police officer until the 1950s. In fact, in 1945, he was, he was over in Europe in fighting World War II. Uh, and then the next one, what did the state police officer do at the crash site? In the original uh, story, the craft was initially hidden. Someone had thrown dirt over it, so the state police officer left without even seeing it. In the revised story, the New Mexico, New Mexico state police officer, Eddie Apodaca, and Jose Padilla's father entered the down craft. So the story just keeps shifting and changing. So much different, so many different uh, problems with everything here. Uh, how was the craft described? In the original story, it was described as, as a disc about 30 to 45 feet across at about 5 feet thick, possibly big lights on the bottom. The revised story was shaped like an avocado with a small dome 25 to 30 feet across, 14 feet tall. In the, in the original story that they were trying to uh, sell, uh, did soldiers later throw alien metal in crevice? Uh, the original story uh, line was, yeah, it's still there. Uh, and then the revised story was yes, and so did the boys, Baca said in a 2010 interview. And then uh, in the original story that, the, for the question, how did the boys obtain a metal device or artifact that was part of the alien craft? In the, in the first story they told, the soldiers loaded up trailers with craft debris. As the young soldiers socialized with females in town, the boys swiped the metal piece off the back of a military trailer parked someplace other than the crash site. And then in the revised story, on the last day before the UFO was removed at the crash site, Jose Padilla entered the unattended alien craft and pried the device off an inner wall panel using a pipe or crowbar. So, as you can see, it just keeps morphing and changing. There's all different nonsense in here. And then about uh, Jose Padilla, says he was shot two times, once as when he was in Korea, and there's no record of him being in Korea. He couldn't have been in Korea because he was only 16 years old at the time. And, but even some people will say, well, yeah, 
but uh, some some people lied about their age and they they're able to enter the enter the military. But the problem for for, for Padilla is is that there's no records. There are records available. You could check what, who was killed or wounded during Korea. So and then Valet will come back with with well well he was actually a mop up operation that he was part of. But if even even if there if he, even if he was some part of a mop up operation in Korea after the Korean War ended in 1953, as Johnson uh, lays out here then there still would have been a record that he got wounded when he got shot in the leg. So there's all kinds of lies that these people are telling, and it just becomes, you know, how could you believe this? I mean, you have the, the stories changed and morphed over time, and, and there's just so much to it. And I can't even get into it all. I mean, it's so much that you have to sit here and, and sit down and read it. And once you read it, I can assure you, you will be convinced that this is just one big hoax and that, unfortunately, uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, one of one of the best UFO investigators in the world of all time. He he got duped. He's getting he got duped by these people. That's what it looks like to me. And uh, and I think uh, you have to congratulate uh, Johnson on this on this research because it's clear. It's most certainly clear. There's just so much so much stuff. Uh, I, I you don't even know where to begin. Like I said, it's it's too much to even go over. I mean, this is worth a book itself. The, the, the this information. That's how much stuff he has. Multiple articles on this, and uh, and this. There's no question about it. I, I I once you go through it all, it just becomes pretty clear that uh, apparently this was just something that these guys made up, and apparently they wanted to cash in on it when they first started talking about this story in the early 2000s. That's what the whole idea was. We'll just say this, and you know, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. And again, you even have pe- his own member of his own family, his own son, talk telling you this stuff uh, that the guy's a, a habitual liar. You know, so when you have your own family members telling you, tell, telling the public this kind of stuff, well, what what do you have to? And, and and plus, you have all the evidence that shows that all these things he's been telling people, all these things that he's been feeding to Valet turn out to be false, right? This Padilla, the one who's still alive, could, uh, to Valet never got a chance to interview the other guy, uh, Baca, because by the time Valet started reach, uh, in, uh, researching this, he was already dead. He died in 2013. So basically, was his main source has been uh, this uh, Padilla, and unfortunately for him, he got buffaloed big time. Buffaloed big time, and uh, I, I, yeah, he has those books out there. I, I could understand, you know, you you make a mistake, it's hard to, uh, you know, admit to it. It's like, oh boy, you know, you have to, but you gotta do it, and you gotta do it, and you gotta move on. You know, it's not Valet's fault. I think he should have done a little bit more research. He should have dug a little bit deeper into this. He should have, you know, been doing some of the things that Johnson did here to, to verify uh, what Padilla is telling him. You, you got, I mean, when you look at the, see, this is the thing. You know, Valet puts a book out like this. Everyone in the media is talking about it. It's Jacques Valet. He put this book out. He wrote it. Well, I mean, we, we get a lot of people in the UFO community, you read books like uh, that are very well researched by other UFO researchers, like I was just talking before, Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt, all those Roswell books, very well researched over many years, right? Uh, they, 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 and they do their, their due diligence to make sure that the, the, this army uh, uh, private who's telling them something was a really real army private. Like they'll do all that due diligence to make sure every, all their ducks are lined up. But obviously, the, the the ducks valet didn't line up his ducks with this with this book. That's that's what happened. You just got to just say the truth. That's what happened, and you got to move on. Then, 
Uh, now, there was another aspect of this story. I'm going to change course here a little bit. There was another part of this story I want to get into next. And, uh, and this is an extension of that. And this is something where I believe Johnson is actually not correct about. I just want to talk about this document, this alleged leaked document that was dated June 1947. Uh, the title of it is Relationships with Inhabitants of Celestial Bodies. It should be Celestial Bodies, but it's misspelled so Celestial Bodies. In fact, there's a lot of misspellings in this leaked document. You can find this document uh, in this article that I will uh, leave a link for, as well as on uh, MajesticDocuments.com. That's the website operated by uh, Ryan Wood and his father, Robert Wood. Uh, but anyway, this document, before we understand, I, I, I need to talk about this first be, uh, before we get into uh, 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 some of the arguments made by uh, Douglas Johnson with regard to uh, some of the claims made by uh, Paola Harris uh, regarding this document. Before we even get into that, I need we need to understand this document. I'm going to present this document and talk about it and give you my assessment of it. Okay, now, as we all know, uh, there was a, whole, a lot of different MJ-12 documents that have been released throughout the years. I've talked about a, a lot of them on this show over, over over the course of the last couple, few years that I've been doing this. And, uh, you know, recently I talked about the White Hot Majestic 12 document that was put together by General Nathan Twining, allegedly. Uh, I also talk a lot about the uh, the Cutler Twining memo, the, the Eisenhower briefing document, and uh, uh, also the uh, Special Operations Manual. Now, this is a document I have not talked about before on the show, but I'm going to talk about it today because it it's, it's, uh, becomes a major player in one of the articles that, have, that has been put together by uh, Douglas Johnson regarding his... Uh, you know, his work on debunking this Trinity UFO site. But before we even get into that, let's look at this document. Now, uh, there's a lot of misspellings in it. Uh, it looks like it was something that was hastily put together. It was put together, it's the date on it just says June 1947. Now, you have to understand what was going on in June 1947. You know, between June and July of 1947, even before the June 24th, uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting of the nine objects flying over Mount Rainier, right? Uh, even before that, there was other people were, were seeing things. It was that whole month of June, pretty much, there was a lot of different sightings. In fact, there was one that was reported, uh, a UFO allegedly hovering over Oak Ridge uh, facility in uh, in Tennessee, uh, where, you know, they're working with atomic and nuclear uh, uh, weapons at that time. So there was a lot of UFO sightings, and you would have to imagine, particularly after the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and all the more, there were so many other sightings that were reported in newspapers all across the world. In fact, there's a really interesting uh, document that I found uh, today. It was, uh, it's called the uh, uh, the report on the UFO wave of 1947. It was uh, released in 1967 by and written by Ted Blosher with a uh, a forward by the. Uh, one of the uh, all-time UFO investigators, uh, James E. McDonald. And uh, McDonald actually talked about, uh, in, in that forward he wrote, he actually says, doubtless most other readers will be stunned as I was to realize that already in the first two weeks after Kenneth Arnold's Mount Rainier report of June 24, 1947, press reports of other American sightings of highly unconventional aerial objects uh, numbered not the dozen or so that most of us might recall, but many hundreds since Blosher is careful to concede that his own searching cannot possibly have gleaned every last report from the 1947 press files, we can safely round upwards his collection of, of about 800 reports to an estimate 
that at least some thousand sightings of unidentified objects probably occurred within the United States in midsummer 1947, the bulk of these coming within a rather sharply defined wave crest centered on about July 7th. Uh, I'm going to leave a link for that. If you haven't seen this document, you should really check it out. But anyway, getting back to this Oppenheimer-Einstein document, this alleged leaked document where they're talking about UFOs and extraterrestrials, uh, you have to imagine that at the, in 1947, when this uh, when this UFO wave was going on, uh, you know, in June and July, and it's particularly after Kenneth Arnold had his June 24th sighting, there was just an explosion of reports in newspapers all across the war- country at the time. So you would have to imagine that people in the military just weren't sitting on their on their duffs not doing anything about it or not being concerned about it. They obviously were concerned about it. Obviously, they would be concerned about it. And obviously, they would want to contact the uh, the most knowledgeable people they, they have that they know of, people like Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein. I mean, the, both of them were in Princeton at the time, right? Uh, so why not? And that's it's actually, their, their names are at the bottom of this document. It's not signed, but it's, it says it's a draft. So you have to imagine, in my mind, when I look at this document, to me, this looks like it was something of a rush job, that it was something that was hastily put forward. Uh, you know, you, you could imagine some people in the military or from the Pentagon contacting, uh, you know, I, all of a sudden they're, they're faced with this, uh, this uh, seems like a, uh, an invasion of all, the, all these flying saucers all of a sudden, all these reports, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what is it? Well, they had a pretty much quickly... Uh, put away the idea that it could be Russia or any other country, right? At the time, the United States is the, is the, is the, is the most powerful country in the world, right? At that time. And they know it's not them. The only logical explanation to them at the time had to be, this must be extraterrestrial. That's what they had to think, be thinking. And they probably came to this conclusion pretty early on, even before the Roswell crash, which this letter is dated, is dated, dated June, 1947. <clears throat> so let's go through it and we'll and, and we'll talk about it. It says here, relationships with extraterrestrial men presents no basically new problem from the standpoint of international law, but the possibility of confronting intelligent beings that do not belong to the human race would bring up problems whose solution it is difficult to conceive. Now you can see that right out right out of the gate there, there's uh, there's some. Uh, typos here presents no basically new problem like what you know it should should be maybe it should have just been presents basically a new problem from the standpoint like this looks like it was something hastily put together and you have to ask yourself if uh, you're 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 gonna hoax documents like this why would you put it together like this why would you put it together with with obvious uh, typos and mistakes and things like that but anyway let's go through it it says here in principle there is no difficulty in accepting the possibility of coming to an understanding with them and of establishing all kinds of relationships. The difficulty lies in trying to establish the principles on which these relationships should be based. So basically, it looks like Oppenheimer and and Einstein, if this document is real, were approached by people in the Pentagon and asked to come up with an assessment on, you know, what does this mean if there's extraterrestrials here? How do we how do we deal with this? And this is and they were trying to provide answers in this document, which is about uh, six pages long, I believe. It says, yeah, it's six pages. It says here, in the first place, it would be necessary to establish communication with them through some language or other, and afterwards, as a first condition for all intelligence, that they should have a psychology similar to that of men. At any rate, international law should make place for a new law on a different basis, and it might be called law among planetary peoples, following the guidelines found in the 
Pentateuch. Obviously, the idea of revolutionizing international law to the point where it would be capable of coping with new situations would compel us to make a change in its structure, a change so basic that it would no longer be international law, that is to say, as it is conceived today, but something altogether different so that it could no longer bear the same name. If these intelligent beings were in possession of a more or less culture and a more or less perfect political organization, they would have an absolute right to be recognized as independent and sovereign peoples. We would have to come to an agreement with them to establish the legal regulations upon which future relationships should be based, and it would be necessary to accept many of their principles. Finally, if they should reject all peaceful cooperation and become an imminent threat to the earth, we would have the right to legitimate defense, but only insofar as would be necessary to annul this danger. Another possibility may exist that a species of Homo sapiens might have established themselves as an independent nation on another celestial body. They spell celestial wrong throughout this. Again, to me, this document looks like it was something that was put together in haste, and I will provide uh, some speculation on what might have happened here. Anyway, so let me go back to that. It says, another possibility may exist that a species of Homo sapiens might have established themselves as an independent nation or another celestial body in our solar system and evolved culturally independently from ours. Obviously, this possibility depends on many circumstances whose conditions cannot yet be foreseen. However, we can make a study of the basis on which such a thing might have occurred. In the first place, living or conditions on these bodies, let's say the moon or the planet Mars, would have to be such as to permit a stable and to a certain extent independent life from an economic standpoint, much has been speculated about the possibilities for life existing outside of our atmosphere and beyond, always hypothetically, and there are those who go so far as to give formulas for the creation of an artificial atmosphere on the moon, which undoubtedly have a certain scientific foundation and which say one day come to light and which may come day well, yeah, excuse me, and which may one day come to light. Let's assume that magnesium silicates on the moon may exist and contain up to thirteen percent water using energy and machines brought to the moon perhaps from a space station the rocks could be broken up pulverized and then backed to drive off the water of crystallization this could be collected and then decomposed into hydrogen and oxygen using an electric current or the shortwave radiation of the sun the oxygen could be used for breathing purposes the hydrogen might be used as a fuel in any case if no existence is possible on celestial bodies except for enterprises for the exploration of their natural riches with a continuous interchange of the men who work on them, unable to establish themselves there indefinitely and be able to live isolated life, independence will never take place. Now we come to the problem of determining what to do if the inhabitants of celestial bodies or extraterrestrial biological entities, EBEs, desire to settle here. One, if they are politically organized and possess a certain culture, culture similar to our own, they may be recognized as an independent people. They could consider what degree of development would be required on Earth for colonizing. Two, if they consider our culture to be devoid of political unity, they would have the right to colonize. Of course, this colonization cannot be conducted on classic lines. A superior form of colonizing will have to be conceived that, would, that could be a kind of tutelage, possibly through the tacit approval of the United Nations, but would the United Nations legally have the right of allowing such tutelage over us in such a fashion? Um, and it continues here, and it has uh, A, although the United Nations 
uh, is an international organization, there is no doubt that it would have no right of tutelage since its domain does not extend beyond relationships be between its members. It would have the right to intervene only if the relationships of a member nation with a celestial body affected another member nation with an extraterrestrial people is beyond the domain of the United Nations. But if these relationships entail a conflict with another member nation, the United Nations would have the right to intervene. B, if the United Nations were a supranational organization, it would have co competency to deal with all problems related to extraterrestrial peoples. Of course, even though it is merely an international organization, it would have this competence if its member states would be willing to recognize it. Then it goes on to say, it is difficult to predict what the attitude, looks like they have little breaks here, like they're answering separate questions, like they might have been asked, these two guys, if this document is real, Oppenheimer and Einstein might have been asked certain questions and they're trying to respond to each one individually. It goes on to say, it is difficult to predict what the attitude of international law will be with regard to the occupation by celestial peoples of certain locations on our planet, but the only thing that can be foreseen is that there will be a profound change in traditional concepts. We cannot exclude the possibility that a race of extraterrestrial people more advanced technologically and economically may take upon itself the right to occupy another another celestial body how then would this occupation come about one the idea of exploitation of one celestial state would be rejected they may uh, uh, would be rejected they may think it would be advisable to grant it to all others capable of reaching another celestial body but this would be to maintain a situation of privilege for these states Two, the division of a celestial body into, into zones and the distribution of them among other celestial states. This would present the problem of distribution. Moreover, other celestial states would be deprived of the possibility of owning an area, or if they were granted one, it would involve complicated operations. Three, indivisible co-sovereignty, giving each celestial state the right to make whatever use is most convenient to its interest, independently of the others. This would create a situation of anarchy. The strongest one win would win out in the end. Uh, four, a moral entity, the most feasible solution it seemed uh, it seem would be this one. Submit an agreement providing for the peaceful absorption of a celestial race or races in such a manner that our culture would remain intact with guarantees that their presence not be revealed. Wow, that's interesting. Actually, we do not believe it necessary to go that far. It would merely be a matter of internationalizing celestial peoples and creating an international treaty instrument preventing exploitation of all nations belonging to the United Nations. Then there's like another uh, break in it. Like maybe they're going to ask answer another question here. <clears throat> it says here occupation by states here on Earth, which has, uh, which has lost all lost all interest for international law since there were no more res nullius territories, is beginning to regain all its importance in cosmic international law. Res nullius, by the way, is something that belongs to nobody, such as the moon. Uh, occupation consists in the appropriation by a state of res nullius. Until the last century, occupation was the normal means of acquiring sovereignty over territories when, other, when explorations made possible the discovery of new regions, either uninhabited or in an elementary state of civilization. The imperialist expansion of the states came to an end with the end of regions capable of being occupied, which have now been drained from the earth and exist only in interplanetary space where the celestial states present new problems." Then it talks about rest nullius is something that belongs to nobody, such as the moon. In international law, a celestial body is not subject to the sovereignty of any state. 
is considered rest nullius. If it would, if it could be established that a celestial body within our solar system, such as our moon, was or is occupied by another celestial race, there could be no claim of rest nullius by any state on Earth. If that state should decide in the future to send explorers to lay claim to it, it would exist as rest communis. Uh, that is, that all celestial states have the same rights over it. And now to the final question of whether the presence of celestial astral planes in our atmosphere is a direct result of our testing atomic weapons. The presence of unidentified spacecraft flying in our atmosphere and possibly maintaining orbits about our planet is now, however, accepted as de facto by our military. So basically it's what they're saying here is that the that the military at this point in June, by June of 1947, they had come to the conclusion, the top people in the Pentagon at that time have come to the conclusion that it was, had to be extraterrestrial, even though they weren't saying anything like this publicly. So uh, continuing here. It says, on every question of whether the United States will continue testing of fission bombs and develop fusion devices or hydrogen bombs or reach an agreement to disarm and the ex... ex uh, exclusion of weapons that are too destructive with the exception of chemical warfare on which by some miracle we cannot explain an agreement has been reached the lamentations of philosophers the efforts of politicians and the conferences of diplomats have been doomed to failure and have accomplished nothing the use of the atomic bomb combined with space vehicles poses a threat on a scale which makes it absolutely necessary to come to an agreement in this area. With the appearance of unidentified space vehicles, opinions are sharply divided as to their origin. Over the skies of Europe and the United States has sustained an ineradicable fear and anxiety about security that is driving the great powers to make an effort to find a solution to the threat. Military strategists foresee the use of spacecraft with nuclear warheads as the ultimate weapon of war. Even the deployment of artificial satellites for intelligence gathering and target selection is not far off. The military importance of space vehicles, satellites, as well as rockets is indisputable since they project war from the horizontal plane to the vertical plane in its fullest sense. Attack no longer comes from an exclusive direction nor from a determined country but from the sky with the practical impossibility of determining who the aggressor is, how to intercept the attack, or how to affect immediate reprisals. These problems are compounded further by identification. How does the air defense radar operator identify, or more precisely, ca classify his target? At present, we can breathe a little easier knowing that slow-moving bomber bombers are the mode of delivery of atomic bombs that can be detected by long-range early warning radar. But what do we do in, let's say, 10 years from now? When artificial satellites and missiles find their place in space, we must consider the potential threat that unidentified spacecraft pose. One must consider the fact that misidentification of these spacecraft for an intercontinental missile is in a re-entry phase of flight could lead to accidental nuclear war with horrible consequences. So let me just stop there for a second. They're actually expressing concerns that uh, of concerns that people still have, uh, basically, and they knew they had those same concerns back then. That hey, if, if you know, things could be misidentified, you know, if we we might think something's something's a, a nuclear weapon coming from Russia when it's not, and uh, next thing you know, there's World War Three. Anyway, it continues here. It says, lastly, we should consider the possibility that our atmosphere, atmospheric tests of late could have influenced the arrival of celestial scrutiny. They could have been curious or even alarmed by such activity, and rightly so, for the Russians would make every effort to observe and record such tests. So we're talking about that maybe it was the atomic bomb test that they were conducting at the time that, that led to this, that caused these beings to show up all of a sudden. In conclusion, it is our professional opinion based on submitted data that 
that the situation is extremely perilous and measures must be taken to rectify a very serious problem are very apparent. And it's signed here respectively, Dr. J. Robin Oppenheimer, Director of Advanced Studies, Princeton, New Jersey, Professor Albert Einstein, Princeton, New Jersey. And then there's uh, on the very bottom, there was a little uh, addendum there, and it was signed by, the initial by Vannevar Bush. It says, myself and Marshall, what he's, ta- he's talking about, uh, George Marshall, uh, who was the, General George Marshall, who was the Secretary of State at the time, says, myself and Marshall have read this, and I must admit there is some logic, but I hardly think the president will consider it for the obvious reasons. I understand Oppenheimer approached Marshall while they attended a ceremony at, it's blacked out, as I understand it, Marshall rebuffed the idea of Oppenheimer uh, discussing this with the president. Uh, I talked to Gordon and he agreed. I think he's talking about Gordon here. He's, I think he's talking, referring to Gordon Gray, who was the assistant secretary of the army at the time, and also somebody along with Vannevar Bush, who uh, became an uh, alleged member of Majestic 12. Uh, but anyway... I just wanted to point this out. Now, I think what's going on with this document here, I think that this document is could potentially be real. And, uh, and I think it was something that was put together in haste. I think that at some point in June of 1947, it's very possible that uh, the high brass in the Pentagon realized that there was a problem and that there was people seeing these flying saucers and that uh, they needed some expert advice. I mean, so who did they turn to? Who else? Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer. Why not? Uh, and and they had some questions, and they got those questions answered in this really quick, slap together, now document. Now, who? How did this? What what explains? In my mind, what would explain how this thing got slapped together? Why there's typos? And... For one thing, if you look at the very top of the page, it says draft, um, and it's from June 1947. It could have here, here's here's what you could imagine what could have, what could could have happened here. I mean, basically, what could have happened is that. They decided at some point, let's just say it was on June 25th. It's like, wow, we got a problem here. There's flying saucers all over the place. People are seeing them everywhere. This must be extraterrestrial. Some conclusions might have been made. We need to get the uh, expert opinions from some of the top scientists we have. How about words? Let's get Oppenheimer and Einstein. They're both there out at, at Princeton and Jersey. We'll, they could, we'll send one of our uh, uh, representatives out there to talk with them and send, send a stenographer. We'll put something together, have them put a quick report together so we could talk about it. We could try to understand. What, what 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 does this mean that's probably what happened here that's what this looks like to me this doesn't look like something that Oppenheimer and Einstein you know look you know took their time and put together it could be that they did write this up themselves maybe this was just the draft like it says on the top of the page it could have been a draft that was just slapped together really quick and they're gonna uh have maybe edit it later on but maybe they were contacted by the Pentagon and says no we can't wait for you to to to, to make it uh the pretty it up we need it right now send it out right now or we'll send over one of our agents right now to pick it up whatever there could have been multiple reasons maybe they had a uh this was a a, a conversation that occurred on the phone and it was typed by somebody else on the other end or something who knows how it went down but it looks like it was something that was slapped together quick it looks like that somebody in the pentagon that's why i believe it possibly could be real this is my reasoning for it that this was something that was put together very quickly but now i bring this up because um I want to talk about another article that uh, uh, Johnson has written about uh, this Trinity hoax, and 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 I, and I while I agree with some aspects of it, um, I don't agree with all of it, and I, mean, I want to go through this uh, now. In an article from last September, uh, he was talking about this Paola Harris who co-wrote this uh, Trinity book with with Valet. 
uh, at one point he said, uh, he writes in this article, and I'll leave the links for all these things so you can check them out. It says, he, he writes, uh, ha- uh, in pushing the imagine, in pushing the imagined Oppenheimer UFO link, Harris employs a document that she believes to be a letter written jointly by Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein to President Truman titled "Relationships with Inhabitants of Celestial Bodies." And of course, he's pointing out that "celestial" is spelled wrong. Uh, and again, I, I gave you my reasons for that. I think that this is something that was put together quickly, and and some people, some top brass in the Pentagon, were probably looking for uh, an answer really quickly, and they got it really quickly. And even though it was messed up, and it wasn't, and it was only in draft form at the time, they, that didn't matter to them. They didn't care about that there was misspellings, or you know, they wanted it that right then and now. You know, so that's that's my my uh, excuse for that. That's my, my belief on that one, potentially. Uh, and actually, just to point out, Harris had talked about this in a document documentary, uh, and this is and and uh, Johnson is addressing it this in that in this uh, uh, in this report. He goes on to say the document re- uh, is marked top secret and draft and dated June 1947. Harris associates this document with MJ12, a never substantiated secret government group that some believe was in charge of the UFO slash alien subject to which innumerable hoax documents have been attributed since the 1980s. Harris thinks the letter constitutes evidence that a UFO crash occurred in the United States prior to June 1947, which is the date on the document. There is no reference in the document to a crashed, recovered, or recovered UFO, but in her September 16th presentation in this documentary, Harris said, why would they write the letter? There had to be a crash before that, before June 1947, so there was a crash before that. The Roswell incident occurred in 1947. I, I don't think that the, there's anything in that letter that's... I, I, I totally agree with Johnson. There's nothing in that letter, in that Oppenheimer-Einstein letter, that states that the, uh, that there was a, a crash. I don't see that at all. I think that, they, that, that to me, what I, we're seeing there is they were asked to provide answers to what does this mean? We're seeing all this stuff. What do you have for us? I think that's what it was. But anyway, I just want to go back to where he says to which innumerable hoax documents innumerable you could actually count the documents there's you could there's a listing on uh, uh, majesticdocuments.com by it's not innum- innumerable means there's so many you can't count them no it's not innumerable that's uh, that's an embellishment there on Johnson's part and here's I take issue with the rest of this though although I agree with him he's right about what Harris is saying here but the rest of this uh, is totally wrong He goes on to say, I am far from an expert on the troves of MJ-12 documents, but I have observed that some of them were adaptations of real documents or reflect other efforts to produce halfway convincing counterfeits. In contrast, the Einstein-Oppenheimer letter on inhabitants of celestial bodies are are as unconvincing as they come. I disagree with that. That's pure opinion opinion on his part. Uh, But he continues here. It says, The document purports to be a discussion of issues raised by relationships with extraterrestrial men, elsewhere referred to as extraterrestrial biological entities, particularly if they wish to settle here. The first four pages are so wretchedly written as to be virtually incoherent besides being replete with misspellings. Okay, yeah, it's, it, it, I, I didn't find it incoherent. I, I think I understood what they're trying to say there, so I don't know. what he, It wasn't virtually incoherent, and there were, yeah, there were misspellings because, again, I believe that this was something that was hastily put together. The, uh, the Pentagon wanted answers, and they wanted them from the, from the top brains in the, in, the, in, the, in the country at the time, and this is what they got. 
It continues here. It says, to the extent that this material conveys anything intelligible, it is filled with nonsensical statements. For example, the observation that another possibility may exist, that a species of Homo sapiens might have established themselves as an independent nation on another celestial body in our solar system and evolved culturally independent from ours. Uh, why is that a nonsensical statement? I'm trying to figure it out. What, what they're saying is they're, they're actually suggesting that maybe there were uh, human beings that left this world at some point in the past, past, maybe they become technologically advanced, and now they're coming back. That's all they're saying. How is that nonsensical? I mean, at the time, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you expect these people to think when all of a sudden they're faced with an extraterrestrials coming to Earth, when they're starting to realize what's going on? That's, that's, you would come to, you would probably have all sorts of wild speculation. I don't, think, I don't see anything wrong with that whatsoever. Uh, anyway, it continues here. And a call for international law to be replaced by law among planetary peoples following the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. It is unfathomable to me that any person with a modicum of critical discernment could take this rambling nonsense to be an authentic product of either Oppenheimer or Einstein. Okay, I got to say this. I, I think it's unfathomable that uh, any person with a modicum of critical discernment is not hasn't sat down and thought this thing through with that before writing this out. I mean, uh, hot, again, like I'm, I'm proposing that this was something that was slapped together quickly. That they, like, again, people in the Pentagon wanted to get some answers from uh, Oppenheimer and Einstein, and they wanted them quick. I mean, they to them at in nineteen in, in June July nineteen forty seven. This was an emergency. We're talking uh, a thousand reports in midsummer. So what are we talking about here? I don't think that if it was something that was slapped together, for all we know, like I said, there could have been some army of personnel that showed up, army air force officials that showed up. Maybe one of them with a typewriter, and they could have just been typing out what their opinions were. They're asking these questions: We need to do something. What do you What do you have for us? And that, and they typed this out, and then uh, that's what it could have been. So I don't see what's what, there's. There's, to me, you got to think the whole thing through, and I don't. I think this is where one section, one part of his his research, Johnson's research, is where he fails. Uh, continuing here, he says the voice of the document does shift near the bottom of page four, beginning with this sentence. And now to the final question of whether the presence of celestial astral planes in our atmosphere is a direct result of our testing atomic weapons. End quote. Some of the material that follows, barely more than a page, is at least semi-coherent. For example, the expression of concern that 10 years or so down the road, misidentification of these spacecraft for an intercontinental missile in a re-entry phase of flight could lead to accidental nuclear war with horrible consequences. I wondered if this portion of the letter at least might have been inspired by a document that Einstein and or Oppenheimer actually wrote, not a letter about UFOs, but about the future dangers of accidental nuclear war. I thought that whoever forged the letter might have used some real document of that nature as a matrix into which to inject the UFO material. Again, this is pure conjecture on his part. Again, it, but it's being presented as fact. I mean, again, I'm not sitting here saying 100% that Majestic 12 documents are real, that this Oppenheimer-Einstein document is absolutely, completely correct. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's no proof to, that yet. I have not seen any proof. There's no proof in this article, no proof anywhere that shows that it's fake. In fact, I actually think it's more of a chance that it's real. And, and also, I want to point out that Ryan Wood on his Majestic document document.com uh, page states he, he believes believes that this document is more likely to be a real document than a false one. Uh, anyway, continuing here, it says, I consulted first with Barry Greenwood, a researcher greatly knowledgeable on many aspects of ufolo ufological history, including the MJ-12 hoaxes. Again, you're calling it hoaxes. Are you sure? Are you sure you want to go that far? Where is your absolute end-all evidence to show that these documents are hoaxed? You don't have it. You can't say it. 
See, this is what the problem is. The, the great reporting that was done on this Trinity uh, uh, case, there's no question about it. Fantastic reporting. But then you start doing this. You're, you're, you're calling things, you know, saying things with assertion. You're asserting it with guarantees, language. They're including the MJ-12 hoaxes. You don't have the proof to say that. Where's your end-all evidence? You don't got it. All you got is speculation. He responded in an email. Uh, this is Barry Greenwood. It says, It looks to me like the Oppenheimer-Einstein document was created out of whole cloth with discussion that I can't imagine would have been like anything Oppenheimer or Einstein would have written that could have served as a model for the fake. There you go. It's, it, 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 that, there's nothing in the document, according to this guy, that would have they could have written that served as a model for the fake. That tells me that that, that actually uh, helps my argument to say that this was something that was slapped together really quickly by somebody under some situation, under duress or whatever. Somebody wanted this uh, information very speedily, and they, they got it very speedily, even though it turned out to be messily written. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, and then the next one here says, I then consulted Professor Alex Wellerstein, the expert on the history of nuclear secrets and author of Restricted Data, the history of nuclear secret in the United States, seeking his observation, observations of the section of the letter dealing with the dangers of accidental nuclear war. In an email dated August 10, 2023, Professor Wellerstein wrote in part, I know of no instance in which this was discussed by any of these people. I would note that contextually, the document contains things that Oppenheimer and Einstein for one would never say. For example, on page five of the Celestial Inhabitants letter, it laments the inability of international agreements to control atomic weapons. In June 1947, the date of the fake letter, again, calling it a fake letter, the failure of these agreements was not at all clear. Oppenheimer was himself deeply involved in the question of international control, and Einstein was advocating for it very strongly. So they would have regarded this as something in progress and not a failure. It is only several years later that any of them would have regarded these neg no negotiations as obvious failures. Now, uh, my reading of that document, I don't see them, you know, I, I don't see that. I, I, don't, I don't read that into it, what he's reading into it. Uh, let's go back to it here. Um... Yeah, he says here, on every question of whether the United States will continue testing of fission bombs and develop uh, fusion devices, hydrogen bombs, or reach an agreement to disarm and the uh, exclusion of weapons that are too destruct destructive, with the exception of chemical warfare, on which by some miracle we cannot explain, an agreement has been reached, the lamentations of philosophers, the efforts of politicians, and the conferences of diplomats have been doomed to failure and have accomplished nothing. I, I, don't, I don't think that's an end-all uh, I don't think that, that that's the, the... I don't get that out of that. Again, it was sloppily put together, probably because of the circumstances in which it was put together. And I don't see that. I don't see... I don't... I don't I'm not reading that into it. I mean, I... And here, here's the other thing, though. Those two guys were really smart, and, and they probably... Publicly, uh, they they were still fighting to, to, to make it so that this doesn't become a problem, that nuclear proliferation doesn't just continue, right? I'm sure that publicly they were thinking, no, we could stop this, but privately they knew they would have to know that those guys weren't done right there's two of the smartest guys in the world at the time anyway going back to the article here uh he also says uh there are some terminology issues they would not have called thermonuclear weapons fusion devices in 1947 nor probably even hydrogen bombs they called them supers at this time and they were not discussed even with trubin the term hydrogen bomb was basically not used until late 1949 early 1950 
Uh, I'm just going to throw this one out there. I don't know how you would know this for certainty. I just don't know. Uh, because, I mean, for one thing, hyd- the, the term hydrogen bomb, that, uh, by, in 1947, uh, we all know that, that we were already working on uh, to that end. We were working on, on building a, a bigger, badder atomic bomb, and, the hi- and that was the hydrogen bomb. And, and maybe for all we know, maybe that time in that letter, that little document we're talking about, maybe that's the first time they used hydrogen bomb. Uh, this guy can't prove this doesn't prove again I get, this doesn't prove anything anyway continuing here it says even the bit <clears throat> referring to atmospheric tests of late is a bit anachronistic the United States had only tested three bombs by mid-1947 the last two Operation Crossroads they invited the Russians to observe the adding of atmospheric is an un- unnecessary one in 1947 there were no other kinds done nor contemplated at that point only by the 1950s as concerns about fallout began to grow did the United States start to think about underground testing which is where distinguishing between underground and atmospheric testing makes a difference okay go back to the original document uh yeah i know what he's talking about here and uh i just it's this paragraph here it says lastly we should we should consider the possibility that our atmospheric test of late could have influenced the arrival of celestial scrutiny they could have been curious or even alarmed by such activity and rightly so for the russians would make every effort to observe and record such tests i don't see what the problem is with them the fact that they they're throwing our atmospheric tests in there that's because they were in the atmospheric we were uh experimenting with them atmospherically i think he's he's thinking because later on they were talking they, they really didn't use that word that much uh until later until they were talking about underground tests then they would start saying atmospheric or underground but they're talking about something different here they're saying that because of weird bl- ex- uh exploding these things in the atmosphere that might have drew the attention so that's why they use the word atmospheric he's again i i don't agree at all with what this guy's saying there, there, these are both the kinds of things that would not be obvious to someone who wasn't very, very steeped in the history. Inadvertent acronyms that give the game away. I, I, in fact, I, I don't. Again, I don't agree. This is separate from the fact that Einstein would absolutely not have included in these discussions. Uh, would, would excuse me? Would absolutely not have been included in these discussions. He, he, and Oppenheimer did not get along. Oppenheimer absolutely did not need Einstein's prestige to be taken seriously. Einstein did not have a security clearance, etc. Uh, I mean, I think what's happening here. This guy is allowing his. Obviously, this guy is a bigger fan of uh, Oppenheimer than Einstein. I, I think he's allowed his uh, prejudice to uh, inform his opinion on this one. Because I've read some other articles uh, that state otherwise. Um, in fact, I'm going to go to one right now. Uh, yeah, uh, there was a, a, a in that new movie that was based on uh, the source material. It was a, a book uh, written by uh, investigators Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin's biography called American Prometheus. Uh, and they write, uh, I, I'm, here's an article from Vanity Fair. Uh, where, where they say that the they, they did get along. It says the older physicist was skeptical of quantum theory, which Oppenheimer would advance and didn't believe black holes could possibly exist. Uh, and then later on it says, that said, the biographers indicate Einstein and Oppenheimer did still enjoy each other's company. They relay a charming anecdote, anecdote about the two that didn't make it into the Oppenheimer, into Oppenheimer, but would have been a gas to see. In 1948, they write, knowing Einstein's love of classical music and knowing that his radio could not receive New York broadcasts of concerts from Carnegie Hall, Oppenheimer arranged to have an antenna installed on the roof of Einstein's modest home at 112 Mercer Street. This was done without Einstein's knowledge, and then on his birthday, Robert showed up on his doorstep with a new radio and suggested that they listen to a scheduled concert. Einstein was delighted. 
Seems like they were buddies to me. Seemed like uh, Oppenheimer didn't have any problems with him. To me, that's what it looks like to me. Uh, so I don't know what this guy's talking about. Uh, but yeah, that was the opinion uh, of this uh, of this uh, Professor Alex Wellerstein. I, I don't agree with any of his opinion, any, any of his statements here. I just don't agree with them. And then uh, continuing here with the article, uh, Johnson writes, On the final page of the fake Einstein-Oppenheimer letter, there appears a handwritten note ostensibly written by Vannevar Bush, a leading government-affiliated science administrator during World War II and for a time thereafter, and an MJ-12 lore, a leader of, the, of that shadowy group. The note indicated that Oppenheimer would not receive approval to discuss the matter with President Truman. It is possible that this note, at least, was lifted from some real document dealing with an unrelated subject, but if so, we have not identified the source well uh, until you identify the source then what are you even talking about here Where, where's your source i mean you're just you're again that's speculation on your part it doesn't prove that this document was a hoax you believe it's a hoax that's fine but you're you're, you're categorizing it as a hoax period in this whole piece here which i don't agree with um so yeah there's a lot of issues i have with this, uh, let me see here. And there was another thing. Later on, he had an update here. It says, hat tip to Keith C.E.G.J. on X Twitter, who pointed out that in real letters sent by Oppenheimer, the name of his employer is the Institute of Advanced Study, not Advanced Studies, as seen in the Oppenheimer signature caption in the fake letter. Uh, okay, let's just stop there for a second. Again, like I, I in my, uh, uh, what, what I'm speculating here is that it was was put together by somebody else. People went to them and wanted their opinion, and it was all typed out. You had a stenographer or somebody with a typewriter or somebody uh, re- taking notes, and then it was uh, put on paper later on. And they used uh, uh, the they did they did they weren't it wasn't completed. It, it, again, it was only a draft. It was only a draft. And also, he says, also in authentic letters, Oppenheimer rendered his name, both written and typewritten, simply as Robert Robert Oppenheimer, not J. Robert Oppenheimer, as seen in the fake letter. To call again, calling it a fake letter. No, no. Again, this could have been put together by somebody else, uh, a, a secretary to to Einstein, for instance. Both both men are sitting in the room and they're just uh, uh, throwing out stuff, throwing out ideas to a- answer the questions, and somebody's putting it putting it down. Again, somebody from uh, the Pentagon, uh, some officials sitting there with a stenographer and they're just taking notes, and and they and they put it on paper later on, and they put J. Allen, uh, J. Robert ha- uh, Oppenheimer on there. They're not thinking this through. He has not thought this through. Instead, he's throwing out. Uh, all this, he he got some his own some of his own experts to try to debunk this, and he does. I mean, the part that I agree with him with is the fact that uh, uh, this Paola Harris tries to assert that this shows that there must have been something that crashed uh, before 1947, and and this disproves the Trinity case. I agree with him there. That's not not no no no, but it doesn't mean that the the letter's fake, and that's what he tries to. Uh, make it seem like in that article which i don't appreciate so that's why i needed to point that out and talk about it today uh but i'm going to leave a link to all of these things so you could check them out for yourself there's uh again i think he's done great work uh on this uh and but uh, you know except for that one point uh, that i'm talking about here the mj12 his assertion that they're just faked right uh he actually admits that he's not an expert on this but uh he he calling them hoaxed I don't know. So if you're not an expert, then why are you calling them hoax? Where's your absolute end-all evidence? Some uh, some comments from some uh, people who uh, studied uh, these figures? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think that that doesn't still... I don't agree with anything that that guy says. And I, it, it could be... Dis- all of this stuff that you're saying could be disputed when it comes to that. 
So I just want to say this. The bottom line is, is I believe that the, you know, that the Trinity UFO crash is a hoax. There's, I mean, that's what it seems like to me based on all of the research that's been conducted here uh, by Johnson. Fantastic job on that. Uh, I got to say, uh, but I don't agree with his assessment, uh, which is the characterization of, uh, of the MJ-12 documents. Uh, again, I've yet to see, I mean, I've talked about it before, you know, where's the evidence that we, we keep hearing all from all these different people, even some, a lot of people in the UFO community say, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's hoaxed. Well, it, you're not saying it don't, it's not, it's hoaxed. It's, it might be, ho- I think it's hoaxed. Maybe that's what you say. You don't say it's hoaxed period. No, no, that's not how you do. There's no evidence to that. Where's the evidence? Give us the evidence. Show us how this was hoaxed. You know, I, I like to point out the fact that, uh, it would take an incredible amount of time for someone to hoax a lot of these documents, particularly like the uh, the one I was talking about recently, the white hot document or the uh, the uh, the special operations manual, and even this letter. I mean, why would a hoaxer have all these uh, misspellings in there? How? Why would somebody do that? And, and and why? It doesn't make any sense. You know, it does just doesn't. I mean, the only I, to me, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of these documents it would it would take so much time and money and effort for somebody on the outside uh, who's not an insider in the government to put together. It would take too much time. It wouldn't be worth it. I mean, if these documents are hoaxed, I mean, the the main ones that I like to talk about a lot the white hot and among the other ones this one even uh if they were hoaxed that it had to be somebody on the inside it would have to be it would have to be a, a, a some kind of a government psyop for some reason and that does, doesn't make sense to me i don't understand why they would want to do that and why would they want to dupe their own people you know a lot of these documents like for instance the special operations manual was wasn't leaked until after the cold war was in it you know some people will say well this is just to make russia think we're doing this and that that's nonsense that's nonsense but that to me that it just doesn't make sense it all boils down to of course i do think that there are some documents that are hoax there's no question that there's probably some of these other later documents that we've seen that you know there's not much to them and and they could have been hoaxed yeah okay but these ones that we're talking about here i don't think so i think that this was like this document we're talking about today is probably real and as as well as the other ones i believe that they're probably real people need to do their research on this read books like this again top secret magic by uh stanton friedman i mean he did so much research on this and yet we don't hardly ever hear people in the ufo community talking about the the fruits of the efforts there i mean it's a shame really i mean the people in the media need to take a closer look at this stuff. They're not doing it. They're not doing their job. I also want to add uh, another thing here to this is like, how does this affect uh, the 19, alleged 1941 Cape Girardeau case, which, by the way, is uh, uh, potentially referred to in that white hot document that I was talking about earlier. Uh, that doesn't mean that 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 didn't happen. Uh, that could have happened. We, we don't have a lot of. Uh, there's not a lot of witnesses for it. We basically have a third-hand witness relating a story from a second-hand witness who heard the story from the first-hand witness on that one. So that still could be something where they retrieved that uh, some sort of a craft and alien bodies back in uh, 1941. That's still possible. That that still could have happened. I don't know for sure. I I don't know. Uh, it could be a real story. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Maybe it's not even a hoax. Maybe it's just misremembered. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe it really happened. Uh, but it is. it was something. They did talk about something that was recovered in 1941. But maybe what happened in 1941 is... 
uh, at that time, they didn't think there was an invasion. In 1947, it seemed like these these things showed up in force, right? They were showing it was it was a show of force. That's what it seemed like. They're all over the place. A lot of times, uh, it, formations of nine craft flying around, like Kenneth Arnold saw. Uh, and maybe there was maybe at the in 1941 when they found that one in Missouri, and maybe even that 1933 one from Italy that uh, allegedly was brought back to uh, America in 1945 or, or 1944. Maybe even that one. Maybe that. Well, it looks like there's extraterrestrials out there, and maybe it was just they're passing by our planet and they crashed. There's nothing to worry about. We better keep it secret from the public, though. But then in 1947, that's when all hell breaks loose with, with all these sightings. That's a possibility here. Maybe it was, maybe even people like Oppenheimer and Einstein weren't even aware of the 1941 crash, uh, if it was real, or the Italian one, if it was real. That so that's another thing to think about here. I, it doesn't. This all this stuff doesn't make it that there were no crashes that the uh, people within the government knew about before 1947. It was just that in 1947 it was like all hell broke loose, and then maybe that's when finally the United States military realized, wow, we might be under attack here. We better uh, address this. We better look. We better figure out what we're gonna do. That's what could have happened. Anyway, I want to say uh, thank you all for joining me. Until next time.